Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore. Hello, David. Hello, Kevin. Hopefully you're uh, feeling a little better. I know you were waylaid. Waylaid in New Orleans, David, of all places in the world to get waylaid. And all the ways to get waylaid in New Orleans. You didn't do it the way that you're supposed to do it. No, exactly. I only got to about one or two of the restaurants and then got, uh, uh, I don't know what it was, a cold. I I got tested for COVID, and uh, thankfully that was not the case. Uh, But uh, couldn't even get out of bed the day of the game. Uh, Unbelievable to spend that, uh, that day doing that. And uh, me and Mike McCarthy, he was he was right next to me. <laughs> he was, <laughs> he we had the room, we had a, adjoining room. No, oh, no, no. We were in the same bed. We were, he's right there next to me. We're eating well, Cheetos. I would have liked to have seen that column, actually. Oh, it, been, it was it was unbelievable. The insight that he has in the game is unbelievable. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna have a whole new take on him when I write about the Cowboys, and I'm gonna say, no, this is a good idea, Mike. Go ahead and go for it here on on fourth and fifty six. You know. <laughs> So anyway, no, it was it was a real bummer. I was really sorry about that. Uh, also joining us, Callie Kaplan, uh, our Mavs beat writer for the Dallas Morning News. Hello, Callie. Hello, hello. Callie, tell all you got for us. You don't have any. I don't. I'm not as witty as banner. David today. No, I, I gotta save <laughs> no. it for when you and I cover the Mavs Hopefully. game later tonight. You know, I can't. I can't waste it all this morning. We have a whole four or five hours ahead of us. We certainly do, don't we? That's going to be exciting. Uh, let's hope it's exciting anyway. Uh, the maps have not been real exciting lately, so we need to we kind of need to get that perked up a little bit. And then last but not least, well, actually, certainly least, uh, we have our old pal, Evan Grant. Hi, Evan. How's it going? Hello, everybody. It's good to see all your faces here out in radio land. Okay, thank you, Evan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you got a? Uh, have you got one of those horns to your ear or you, that you're listening to all this on? It's, uh, oh my god! Yes, a big tin ear that I've got. The big. It's tin my new ear. hearing aid. I'm just going to walk around with one of those tin ears. Yeah, I like that. It's a good thought. Uh, just yell eh at people. Speak up! <laughs> you say that anyway. All right. Uh, well, we're going to talk about uh, going back to those uh, Cowboys and what they did uh, in uh, New Orleans, which was, A, they had to win, right? And they did that. Uh, not exactly a, a pretty win, a, an ugly win, as, as I believe David wrote. Um, the thing that was striking to me in that game, besides the fact that, A, they did win, was that uh, Demarcus Lawrence came back and played so well and, and seemed to play a, a lot more snaps than maybe he was supposed to play. And uh, with the possibility that Randy Gregory might be back this week against uh, Washington, uh, seems to bode for a really good things for this defense, which is good because the offense continues to struggle. Yeah, um, I think Demarcus Lawrence, who had not played since the opener, uh, broke a bone in his foot in practice that next week, hadn't played since. Uh, he played, I believe, uh, right around 38 snaps, uh, which was exceeded, I think, uh, even what they envisioned. But he looked so good. His conditioning was so good. Uh, he performed at a higher level than I think anyone had a right to expect. Uh, and so that really gave uh, a defense that was already playing good uh, you know, confidence. And, and we talked about this, how – they had kept saying, oh, wait until we start getting all these guys back in December and we'll really be something. Uh, I I think they showed that uh, in that New Orleans game, especially in the fourth quarter. 
Now, all of this was, is with the proviso that the Saints offense isn't the healthiest and most explosive. These are not your typical Sean Payton uh, Saints. Uh, this is a much more limited offensive team. But still, you saw a Dallas team on the road in the fourth quarter with the lead. The defense get three turnovers, won a pick six, uh, and just continue to apply the pressure on a night where the offense uh, once again struggled. And, you know, I... To me, Demarcus Lawrence coming back underscored something else, which is, you know, for three or four years, we've talked about how Demarcus Lawrence is the best player on the Cowboys defense. In his return, I don't think that can be said anymore. Uh, Micah Parsons and Trayvon Diggs both laid claim uh, to this being their defense. Uh, they're kind of the face of this going forward. And, and I think that's a, a really good thing for this defense uh, especially when you see how it struggled in recent years. And, and this isn't a knock on DeMarcus Lawrence. It's a better defense with DeMarcus Lawrence. But we've seen the ceiling that this team has hit with DeMarcus Lawrence as the best defensive player. Now you interject uh, Micah Parsons and Trayvon Diggs and what they're doing this year. And I think it, it just energizes that whole group. And, and, and very quickly, Kevin, you were talking about Randy Gregory potentially coming back this week against Washington. If he returns, Demarcus Lawrence, Randy Gregory, and Micah Parsons, their three main pressure players in the front seven, they have played 28 snaps together this season. Now suddenly you're getting them back for the stretch run. And Parsons, who you've used in so many different ways, you can just use even more now and keep defenses off balance now that you have a couple of pressure players in there. So I really think Micah Parsons, I think Demarcus Lawrence being out accelerated Micah Parsons development and made him the face of this defense in a way that would not have happened if Demarcus Lawrence would have been healthy the whole time. And I think maybe now you can argue this defense is better for it going forward than it would have been. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. I, I'm just still stunned by uh, the development of Micah Parsons, a guy who didn't even play football last year. Yeah, that's uh, phenomenal. Who sat, who sat out the entire season at, uh, because of COVID at Penn State. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always amazed at, at guys who who were – yeah, it, and people knew he was a really good player and was going to be a good player. It's a little bit like, you know, Michael Jordan averaging 16 points at North Carolina and the old joke about Dean Smith. You know, the greatest defensive yeah. player in the, the one who could hold world. it down. Yeah. Yeah. He, he held him to 16 points a game. I mean, and then the guy comes into the league and it's like, oh my gosh, he's five times as good as you thought he was going to be. You know, if, if, if Micah Parsons, if there was any indication that Micah Parsons was going to do this, he might have been the, the first pick of the draft, you know, no question. Uh, yeah. It, it, because really, if there's one thing you really need on defense, uh, the, the, the most invaluable thing to find is a guy who can get to the quarterback. And can do what he does, you know, and, and, and consistently as he does it. Uh, and, 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 you know, when, and we've seen that before, lots of pass rushers take a year or two years to develop. Uh, and, and they, they don't come in right away and are just a, immediate hits. When a guy is able to do that, then you, you know, that this is, if, if everything tracks correctly and there are no problems and no injuries or whatever, this is a hall of fame career. I mean that this this is unbelievable for the Cowboys to get this kind of player at this point, and 
uh, and and, and, I've, and I'm struck, and I was thinking about this when I was watching. And if both the, corners weren't gone, they still they wouldn't have taken them. They would have gone with one of those two corners, and they would have gone one because of the they corners. value that position higher. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and I would not, don't know that I would have blamed them at the time. No. I thought they, they they've been spending too many draft picks on linebackers, too many high exactly. draft picks on linebackers, and and uh, why are you taking another one? Well, thanks for that one, Kevin. Uh, but well, and the, again on him too. I I think what you see is you know I'm amused. Some people say, well, look at the, the pressure he generates in in so much fewer rushes on the quarterback than other pressure players in the league. That means you need to rush him more. To me, that's the old thinking. This is you, you have you now have a defensive weapon which offenses have used with tight ends creating mismatches, running backs creating mismatches. I mean, this is this guy's a mismatch and offenses have to identify him and they don't know from one play to the next whether he's going to rush or he's going to drop back in coverage, and he's outstanding coverage as well. And people who say, well, just rush him more, well, now you're taking him off the field where he's making plays sidelines to sidelines that no other player can make. So that's the that's the beauty of him and what makes this offense, defense so versatile is offensive coordinators don't know what he's going to do from one play to the next. And now, especially with Lawrence and Gregory back, you send all three you know, try to stop that and you can still keep guys back and you're actually getting this outstanding rush with fewer players. So, I mean, they, the, the options to them, I, I, he should stay in this hybrid role. And and he likes to say, are you a pass rusher or are you a linebacker? His response is always, I'm a football player. Yeah, well, he is, is certainly that. Is When's the last time the Cowboys had a, a defensive rookie play to this level, David? Well, DeMarcus well, Ware probably, wouldn't it? DeMarcus Ware, I would say, you know, Leighton Vander Esch played very well in his rookie season. Not I mean, to this that's, level. That's kind of where Not I was going. Yeah. The, the, the only, the, oh, that's the only caution me, Debbie Downer, would throw on it is sure. I remember the hype that was thrown on no Leighton Vander Esch that rookie year. And now we look at him and he's great at making tackles seven yards downfield. So, yeah. Um, now, he has cervical stenosis, and again, this gets back to the injury, a narrowing of the spine. So uh, he has not been the same player since he suffered that injury in his second season, and it was discovered what he's dealing with. And just the fact he is playing and playing at a fairly high level because one hit at a wrong angle and his career is done, uh, and he's aware of that. And so I've got to think that impacts how you play the game in some level. But it just goes uh, back to what you were but saying. But it goes back, I mean, exactly, yeah. The health thing. Kevin Kevin laid no out, you know, where the stats fall and everything. It just comes back to, to with these guys with, with health and how fragile that is. And this is why linebackers have a lesser positional value in a lot of defensive schemes because of the hits they take and their careers aren't as long. You're saying, okay, if we take a linebacker in the first round, his average, you know, NFL career may only be five and a half years. Where if we take a corner, we're talking about a guy for nine, nine and a half years. So that goes into the positional value as well. Uh, same thing with running backs, linebackers, and running backs because of the collisions in open space. Uh, their careers tend to be shorter. Uh, you always have outliers. You always have uh, players who are generational players that aren't bound by those constrictions. But you don't know that until you're a little bit into the career, do you? David, let's switch over to the offense real quick here before we get out of our Cowboys segment and talk about is Zeke Elliott going to remain uh, the the number one back or is Tony Pollard going to usurp some of that uh, role because of Zeke's problems with his knee? 
I think he usurps some, but I find it interesting because I think when uh, we're talking about how the Cowboys should manage Ezekiel Elliott, I think they also have to manage Tony Pollard. Um, I don't know that he is a back. Sure, it sounds great to say, well, Zeke's ineffective, Elliott's ineffective, give Pollard all of these snaps. Well, now you go three or four games with Tony Pollard touching the ball 25 to 28 times a game. Does that burst of speed that makes him special three or four games down the road still going to be there? Um, so I think it's managing both of these guys through the rest of the regular season and into the playoffs. And it reminds me a little of what the Los Angeles Rams were going through back in 2018, late in the season. Todd Gurley started getting fewer and fewer touches, uh, was ineffective late in the season. Everyone kept asking what's wrong. The Rams kept saying, nothing's wrong. We're just managing him. Uh, And to me, the Cowboys are kind of in the same stage with Ezekiel Elliott. They keep saying, well, he just has to play through it. It's a bone bruise. I would be very surprised if he doesn't have some sort of surgery to correct whatever it is he's dealing with at the end of this season. All of that being said, he is able to get out there. I thought he actually ran a little bit better in the New Orleans game than he had in the previous three to four weeks. Uh, I I think it's incumbent on them to manage this, but it's not just managing Elliott. It's also managing Pollard and not using him too much and wearing him down. Yeah, no question about that. All right, we're going to talk about the the Mavericks in our next segment. Uh, and uh, we've got Callie on to talk about that. Uh, as we're recording this on uh, Tuesday morning, uh, Callie, we are going to be out there together tonight at the old Mavs game against the Nets, uh, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, some of the issues that have uh, recurred uh, this season already in the short amount of time that we have here uh, of when when Luca's not on the floor, and certainly when KP's not on the floor either, uh, they're not very good. And Kevin, when you're not at the games, we're not very good either. Oh, I love that. Kelly, I knew you were my new favorite uh, reporter at the Dallas Morning News, but that just cinched it all up right Shameless there. sucking up. This is not, this is <laughs> over I, the top. I have to spend like five hours with him later. We got to start off on a good foot. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is an order. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, now, exactly. again, let us remind you, he may still be infectious with whatever plague it was that he was carrying last week. So yeah. just be aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll keep our masks on. Yeah. There we go. There we go. So, so Callie, what, what, uh, so what's your take now on this team? You know, it, it, everybody talks about Christmas, 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 Christmas. When it, when Christmas gets here, we'll know what this this team is. You know, well, you know, shopping days are, are counting down now. Ca- you know, Callie, what do you think this team is going to be by Christmas? By Christmas, I hope we have a better picture because I was doing the math this morning, and of their twenty two games that they've played so far, they've only had twelve with Luca and KP on the floor at the same time. Um, so in those games, they're eight and four, which is pretty decent. I think they had like a pretty lax beginning of the season uh, to their schedule. And so I don't know if you can count how they would look against the Suns or the Warriors at this point because they didn't look good against the Warriors without or against the Suns, sorry, without Luca there in those fourth quarters that they blew leads. But um, I think we're going to need these, what did you say, 17 shopping days until Christmas? Because assuming that KP can come back tonight healthy and Luca, if it's not tonight, maybe tomorrow in Memphis can come back healthy. Um, we still don't really know what they look like full strength, but I think without Luca and without KP, they are a very, very mediocre to subpar basketball team. Um, as we were watching against the Grizzlies on Saturday, for three and a half quarters, it was not pretty until Tim Hardaway finally started making some shots and and got them back within five a couple of times late. But um, 
I think that's my main takeaway so far is if they don't have Luca and they don't have KP for consistent and, and long stretches, it's it's not going to be uh, very fruitful of a basketball experience. But don't, you, question, don't question. Like, how many teams can survive? That's why you're here. You're, you're the one to ask it. Yes, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm more than happy. Um, how many teams can survive losing their top two stars for any extended period of time? I mean, these are their, their one and two options. It's going to decimate any club, right? It definitely will decimate any club, but I think the supporting cast that they expect to have around um, those two hasn't reached expectations yet. And I think that that has contributed to not only the games without them, you know, just being losses, but being losses that were pretty ugly for the most part. Um, And again, they've only both missed one game together and that was on Saturday. And so it's, it's a small sample size, but Dorian Finney-Smith until recently wasn't playing well. Reggie Bullock and Sterling Brown, who were their two bigger off-season additions um, for three-point shooting and defense. Defense, they've been decent, but three-point shooting has been well below their average. Tim Hardaway Jr. has been well below his average as their kind of big re-signing. Um, and so you would expect that if Luca and KP are out, because they've missed games before and they've been able to win, and usually that's for load management on back-to-backs and things like that later in the season, but... Um, the supporting cast around them has just been so um, down through the first 22 games this season that it's not even like they were going to hang with Memphis. Um, I mean, it, the the final score looks a lot closer than it was. It was a, a pretty rough game. Yeah, and I think the frustrating thing for a lot of fans is that so they made the decision to, to re-sign uh, Hardaway, which, you know, coming off last season, he was pretty good. You know, he was, he, he, there were times he was the second best player on the team. And so – large percentages of the time he was the second best player of the team. So that seemed like a good idea, even though his career had not suggested, certainly when he came here in the deal from the Knicks, that this is not a guy you want to really spend, you know, $20 million a year on. Um, so they, they make that commitment to him. And so what happens? He comes out and he's just been terrible from three point range. He, he, he can't count him for his shot at all. So, uh, and, and it's not like, you know, I, I give him five games, eight games, you know, 10 games to try to get it together. But he's just really struggled so far the, the, the entire uh, season. It's a, a short sample size, as you said, but uh, still very frustrating to see that. Uh, and then when you uh, at coming after the Josh Richardson trade last year, which everybody kind of thought, oh, you know, maybe this will be nice. It's a two way player, you know, and he comes in, he, he can't, he, he's got no sh- the three point shot at all. And he's not even playing particularly great defense. You know, it was just like a complete and utter disappointment. And Seth Curry goes to the 76ers and he's terrific. You know, he's or George kind of had been what he'd always been. He's just playing a larger role of that. A great shooter. One of the great three point shooters in NBA history. Couldn't they use one of those guys now? So, you know, it, it's just been frustrating to watch these things happen. And as you know, you wrote about the other night, uh, when we see the guys that they passed up in that draft to take Josh green, uh, very disappointing. First of all, you know, I think all of us on here, didn't we all predict Sadiq Bay was going to be the, the Mavericks pick in that draft? And I had uh, Sadiq Bay down. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, and, uh, and, and said they, they take Josh Green just because he's this big athletic guy. And, and everything I've heard since then says that was the old analytics team making that pick. That was Bob Bulgaris and that bunch. This is the guy they wanted. Well, that, that worked out great for Bob on his resume to have Josh Green on there so far who, who lately can't even get off the bench. No, he's not in the rotation at all. And so it's nights like Saturday when Desmond Bain goes off and the Mavs need someone to step up before Tim Hardaway Jr. did again in like the last 10 minutes of the game. Um, 
he's going off and Josh Green's on the bench and not doing anything. And the guys that they brought in this offseason weren't really doing anything. And um, it was just, yeah, it was kind of a rough night. You could sense they were a little bit down, but I would say across the board, um, they've handled this rough stretch with maybe more positivity than I would expect have expected coming into the season, not really knowing how the staff would handle rough stretches. I do find it interesting too. I, I know this is a new group, but there's there's a frustration level in the fan base with all of the the rookies that weren't taken, the pieces that have been added, and it's like, well, God, there's got to you got to make a trade now. Well, okay, but these are the people who put these pieces in place in the off season, and, and now you want them to trade and put someone else in place. So again, you know. What is your sense? Do you think they will stand pat? Do you think it's gotten the point where sometimes just for perception and just to get everyone to buy in, you have to make a move? Where where do you think they are is making a move here in the coming weeks? I think in the coming weeks, and again, we have a while, or at sure. least it feels like a while until mid-February for the trade deadline. I get the sense that there will be some sort of movement, whether or not they make a move or whether or not they just you know really pursue something or they – ask around a lot. I get the sense that they will because in getting to know Nico Harrison, he's a very like calm, you know, uh, soft-spoken guy um, on the outside. But the things that he's done behind the scenes so far, I think really signal that he's here to to make an impact. And though they did sign a couple of guys this offseason, the majority of the team, excluding Luca and KP, are, are not his guys. They're not the guys that they that he brought in or that Jason Kidd has even said, this team's not built to play defense. You know, you know they're not built the way that they actually want this basketball team to run. Um, and we see even behind the scenes, Nico came in this summer and immediately um, started trying to do renovations to the practice facility, which is why they're now practicing at the AAC instead of, um, and they're basically like completely re-renovating a whole section of the practice facility because it wasn't up to his standards. So I, I really do think that, um, he'll he's not going to be complacent and he's not going to kind of take a step back and wait and see how things play out he's going to be aggressive to as as much point as he can with whatever assets he's got right now well let me ask you about that because you brought that up and I'm, i've been meaning to ask it and just forgot so what do you <laughs> think that jason meant by that when he said that um you know hey we're not built to play defense is that is he taking a shot at uh, the former regime is he is he criticizing what they they did this off season what is he saying there no, I don't think he's criticizing this offseason. I think it's a little bit of a shot at the former regime. And he said before, too, he's like, we're not just going to win by shooting threes and we're not just going to try and, you know, um, ride our offense to to victories or to championships or to whatever. And that's kind of what the Mavs had been um, in recent years is that they just kind of chucked up threes and they had great offenses. And then defense was something they, you know, preached maybe publicly, but didn't always play on the court. And so. I think it was a little bit of a shot, but more so just kind of a look into his philosophy that philosophy that he was a you know Hall of Fame defensive player, Hall of Fame offensive player, and and if you're not playing two ways, that's not going to satisfy him. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see how they kind of like retool and reconstruct this team based on on what contracts look like and and who's playing well get, uh, down the stretch towards the trade deadline. Yes, yeah, speaking of that trade deadline, you know, we've, we've heard lots of speculation about Goran Dragic. We know the relationship that he has with Luca, and Luca certainly would love to have him on board, uh, and that seems like a, a doable thing uh, until you consider the fact how much, I guess, Dragic is making like $19 million, uh, this year against the cap, so then that makes the – that makes a trade very, you know, uh, hard to do. How do, you, how, do you come, how do you match that up? I guess you could send Dwight Powell and, and something else over uh, in, in that kind of deal. Um, but 
I, I got to tell you, other than being, you know, Luca's buddy on the road, uh, doesn't that feel like JJ Redick all over again? And especially Goran's not playing right now. Um, and so yeah. I, I could see it being a buyout situation, which is a lot more palatable for the Mavs in terms of trying to make those numbers work and, and make, and, and what they would have to give up necessarily. But, um, it'll be interesting. I think it would definitely help in terms of, uh, one, keeping Luca happy two having some more reinforcement from, um, the point guard position and, and three, just kind of having that veteran voice that I think that they've really missed and maybe underestimated how much they would miss since J.J. Bray has been gone. They don't really have the guy, that institutional guy that can kind of get on people and especially get on Luca if he needs to um, to have that. Um, and again, he's really, really close with Luca. Watching those two in Toronto after the game, um, you know, under the stadium right before Luca got on the bus, like I've never seen Luca hug somebody so long. <laughs> They're really close, but um yeah, I, I, he's not going to be the the fix that that you know flips this around and makes the Mavs a Finals contender by any stretch. Uh, yeah, Kelly, I, I have I, a very important question because apparently <laughs> these old men have have not hit on the number one topic of the day, and that is um, what is going to be the impact of Luka Doncic being on TikTok. Oh, good lord! I think I might have to make a TikTok, which is kind of upsetting to me. Um, so yeah, well, you, stay so tuned. You're you're the young person who's not on the tick and the talk. Correct? Well, I know that if I join the tick and the talk, then I'm never going to get off the tick and the talk, and so I just never joined because there's Twitter and there's Instagram, and I spend too much time on my phone already. Um, so no, but if it's Luca, then that's part of my job, and I feel potentially compelled. But we shall see. That's a discussion point for a later podcast. Is he going to like do recipes <laughs> and stuff? I mean, what's he going to do on the TikTok? That would honestly be a little bit incredible if he did. Um, if anything, if I had to predict his content on TikTok, I would say it's probably just going to be him playing video games because I think that's uh, the go-to activity. <laughs> There's nothing I look forward to more than seeing some Luca playing video games. Video. You and me both, Evan. I'm about to have Sean Collins reporting on that the next thing. You know. That'd be great. All well, right. Esports action, yeah. yeah that's the way to bring action. the young people in, Kevin. That's how we bring the young audience in. The young Talk about people. something that was, yes. Yeah, if you could put the article in front of something like that. Yeah, the young You're the Pied people. Piper of the young. I've that's yeah. that's that. me. I am the hip and the hop guy. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Well, listen, we appreciate that Callie coming on with us today. We appreciate David Moore coming on with us today. And, and we know that both of y'all have uh, real jobs, unlike Evan and I, who just sit around and basically and just BS all day long and, and no one uh, would even notice, you know. Uh, so uh, at, at any rate, uh, we, we appreciate y'all coming with uh, on with us. And we know y'all got other things to do. So we're going to excuse y'all now. It's just going to be me and Evan now. So thanks for that. Thanks for leaving me with Evan. I just want to, to to extend that to both of y'all. Yeah, I don't you have anything to best. do. I just wanted to leave the last two segments to you too. Because oh, okay, all right. Well, thanks, David. That's good. That's great. You guys are the best. We'll see you next week. <laughs> thanks, yeah, guys. Well. See you soon, Kevin. Bye, Callie. See ya. So there they go out the door. Uh, Evan, the Rangers uh, are, have still stunned. I think America with what they said they were going to do. You know, it's funny. Uh, when they had the exit interviews and John Daniels and Chris Young uh, and, and Chris Woodward were all up there and they were telling us that this is what they were going to do. And I know there were so many people who, who said, oh, they're not going to do this and blah, blah, blah. And, and I would tell those people when they would write me and, and, and reply, I would just say, if they don't do these things, then we'll just barbecue them for it, right? They said they were going to do it. Uh, you know, I was struck by it when, when they said it. I was struck 
that they were so forthcoming saying, we're going to spend money. I mean, who says that? Nobody says that. Uh, so when someone does, it gets your attention, you know? And so they, they, they said they were going to do it. They did it. Uh, they got, you know, two of the best players that were on the open market this year. They, they, they bought themselves a double play combination, uh, that they're going to be able to use for a long time now. Yeah. You know, I think that the, uh, the only surprise for me was that when it, it ended up taking place was that the shortstop ended up being Seager um, when, you, when you got two middle infielders. Because I thought going in that the Rangers would get a shortstop. I mean, they made it very clear, and there was a big market of shortstops. I wasn't so sure when they started talking about getting two guys. But then when they, you know, when it was explained to me, well, you could go get Simeon for a shorter term deal, you know, the market was supposedly going to be a five or six year deal at about 25 million. And maybe you got story for the same amount. Now, all of a sudden you're spending um, a whole lot less money long-term and you've got more money to go and spend in other places. So when they did get Simeon and then still went out and got Seager, I was really, I was really surprised about that. But I think, look, you made this case, Kevin, of all the shortstops, Corey Seager is the best player. They went out and got the single best player among the shortstops on the market. And in Marcus Simeon, they got a guy who turned himself into a gold glove winner at second base and set an all-time record for home runs by a second baseman. They've gotten leadership. They've gotten they've got faces of the franchise. It would just be great now if they could market them if we didn't have an, act, an actual lockout where they can't do anything with the players whatsoever. Yeah, it's kind of a, a typical buzzkill for the Rangers uh, to launch off all of that, and then uh, now we're just going to boom, nothing for the next month, two months, who knows how long that might go. Uh, it was amazing to, to see there, you know, see John Gray being inter- introduced at six thirty p.m. in the interview room at the bottom of the stadium, and then fifteen hours later, Rob Manfred stepping to that same podium and saying baseball shut down. It's just kind of surreal. Yeah, that's typical. Evan, let's talk about a couple of things that what the Rangers might do now whenever this thing resumes again. Uh, do, do you expect them, you know, one of the big bats is out there is, a, you know, a, a Nick Castellanos, obviously a tremendous hitter, uh, an outfielder. Uh, Kyle Schwarber is out there, obviously kind of run hot and cold in his career. I'm not sure what I, to make of him. Uh, he's a devastating hitter sometimes, and then other times he just disappears. Uh, so, do you expect that kind of bat to be what they add, or is it going to be a thing where a, a Cole Calhoun type of, uh, of of signing, a guy who might be a platoon player, which obviously they did do, uh, is that the kind of thing that we can see to upgrade this roster? No, I mean, I, I think that what I've, what I've indicated is I think the two outfielders that most intrigue them right now are Schwarber and Seiya Suzuki, the, the Japanese outfielder. Um I think that you're you're talking about two different classes in, in terms of free agent. Castellanos, Conforto, Chris Bryant, I think are all at one level of of pay. The Suzuki's and the and the Schwarbers step down, and then you get back down to a lower level where it's the Cole Calhoun type platoon guys like a Jock Peterson or somebody like that. And so I think the Rangers are still looking for a full time player. Uh, I think it would set them back up. That it would set their outfield back up a lot better. And I think that's the class of outfielder that they're looking at right now. Um, and I still think that they're, they're going to look at a pitcher for the middle of the rotation somewhere. 
I think that they will probably try and add a veteran reliever. It would not surprise me to see Ian Kennedy come back here to kind of hold down the back end of the bullpen for the first couple months until Hernandez and LeClerc hopefully get back. And then there's a separate pool of money just sitting there that's determined if Clayton Kershaw decides he's going to play play for the Rangers, we'll find that 20 or $22 million to put that into the pot. So they're not done, and their, their moves could be some high-profile moves. I just don't think they're all going to be elite, the elite free agents that are still on the market. All right, let's really quick here in the time we've got left on our Rangers segment. I want you to go around, uh, starting at catcher, then go around the, the whole lineup next year. I'm not talking about when the season starts. At at uh, you know in August, let's say, what's going to be the Rangers lineup? All right, so let's we'll just play. We'll, we'll, since this is a hopeful game and it's a hopeful time of year, we'll just pull out all the stops. Okay. Yeah. Here we let's go. Let's go uh, catcher Sam Huff, first yeah. base Matt Olson. Wow, Second base, uh, Marcus Simeon. Shortstop, Corey Seager. Third base, Josh Young. Left field, um, we'll go with Adolis Garcia. Center field, we'll go with Leody Tavares. Right field, we'll go with Seiya Suzuki. And then the DH will be some kind of combination of Willie Calhoun um, and Nick Solak or uh, Cole Calhoun and, and Nick Solak, something along those lines. Well, you were doing great till you ran into the outfield and it was just a train wreck. Got Odonis, your best outfielders playing left field. Yeah, but I look Suzuki's Suzuki's a great a great defensive outfielder, and Tavares is a is a prototypical center fielder. And so if you can if you can put Adolis in left field, you've got a plus outfield all the way across the board. Um, I, I think there's still some stuff to be worked out, and I think that the biggest stretch among the prospects that I mentioned would be whether or not Leody is ready to play in the big leagues. He's having a good winter, but I'm still not sure you know he's going to hit enough in the in the big leagues. Yeah, he's never hit any place else. I don't know why he's going to hit in the big leagues. I'm I'm off the Leody bandwagon. All right, that's going to do it for our Rangers segment. Now we want to move over uh, to uh, finish this podcast up with a little talk about colleges. We've had the uh, college football playoff committee came up with its four teams. I think there was probably less controversy about these four teams than I don't know any in, in the in the history of the CFP. Maybe uh, the way it worked out, we ended up with Alabama number one, Michigan number two. Georgia, your Georgia, slid all the way to three with an embarrassing, humbling performance against Alabama. Oh my gosh, pitiful! Just been over and threw up. I'm uh, not. I'm not disputing any of that. And then Cincinnati, thirteen and zero. Cincinnati coming in at four. Uh, we had a couple of teams that could have made some waves there in the Big Twelve title game. Could have been very impactful on the CFP when we had Baylor. In Oklahoma State, uh, a really entertaining game, a 21-16 defensive struggle, uh, which what God knows what's happened to the Big 12, that people are playing defense and no longer being big offensive teams. But uh, a four-interception game for Baylor and a couple of goal line stands, uh, and they held off Oklahoma State. Had the Cowboys been able to pull out that game and score a touchdown on one of those goal line stands by Baylor, uh, I, I believe that Oklahoma State might have gotten in ahead of Cincinnati. I think that was I think that was a possibility. I think the committee was really considering that, especially 
considering the fact that Oklahoma State's had some big wins, they have a they had a much tougher schedule than Cincinnati, uh, and and I do think that uh, that they're underrated, and Mike under that Mike Gundy is underrated as a coach. Oklahoma uh, State's best win would have been Oklahoma or Baylor, right? They're, those would be their two best wins. Well, they would have beaten Baylor twice, right? You know, and, and so, Cincinnati's only win of any significance was was the Notre, Notre Dame, Dame win. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it, you, you could make that. It would have been an interesting argument. Um, uh, but what a great final play to the to the game! I, I, I thought that was. Um, that was an amazing individual effort, and I thought that uh, you captured it really well in, in in your column on the game. I appreciate that, Jared. Uh, Jared McVeigh, a six year former walk on, a, a great kid. Uh, I, I have to tell you, uh, you know, tracking Desmond Jackson on that uh, the last play, you got just two guys going one way, you know, racing for the pylon. How, how great is that? Watching that play develop. I mean, you know. Um, and, and you can't criticize either kid for anything they did. I guess you could say that maybe Desmond should have you know, cut back and tried to go in. But, you know, you your instinct is, and that is that I'm going to outrace this guy to the pilot. All I got to do is get one yard to this pilot and reach, you know. It's like I told my, my son Jake when he was playing quarterback. I said, son, you come from a bad gene pool here. When you're running, don't stop. Just keep going. Hope that your momentum carries you. Don't try to stop and cut back against somebody. Just keep going. No, I, I, I will just like that play. That last play literally made me gasp as as it was developing because you are seeing it become a one on one open field play, um, and and you get a sense of watching it develop as you said. And it just kind of does take your breath away, even if you're not invested in that game. You know what's on. You you do know what's on the line, and and it's two individuals going up for, for one, for one game deciding moment. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun to cover. I, I really enjoyed that game. Uh, so uh, we we seen a lot of things happen. Now, like those four teams getting in, were fine with me. I would have really had a problem with Notre Dame getting in, just because. Uh, uh, Brian Kelly leaving that team on the doorstep of the CFP to go to LSU. You know, I, I, uh, I think Brian Kelly's a really good coach. Uh, maybe he's exactly the guy to go to LSU to, to straighten all this out. But if he's going to go with that fake Southern accent that he came up with at the basketball game, my family, you know, this guy from uh, uh, upper Massachusetts, you know, talking about his family. Uh, a there's there's a video out there with a guy impersonating Nick Saban calling uh, Brian Kelly to congratulate him on the job, and uh, it's pretty hysterical. I would uh, I would Google that if uh, if I was uh, anybody. I tweeted it, um, but it's pretty hysterical. Both the both the impressions and the timing that that Saban has. I I, I don't get Brian Kelly. You know he the way it, for me a lot of things about a coach become very evident in how they leave a program. Yeah. Um, and the way he left the program smacks of the guy that I use as the embodiment of smug. Uh, Petrino. Bobby Petrino. Absolutely. Yeah. I knew you were going to say that. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, if he's going to LSU. I, I don't know what it says to leave Notre Dame for for LSU. I mean, uh, all I've been told all my life, even though I'm an SEC guy, is you know Notre Dame's the best job in the country. It's the best job in the country. 
I don't think you have all the things there at Notre Dame really that you want. I think facilities there are a little outdated. That's what you find in places like that is that they think that their tradition and their history are enough and they don't have to do all this other stuff uh, to make up for it. I will say this, uh, you're talking about people leaving and, and the impression they made. I don't know of any fan base more devastated than when Lincoln Riley took the job at USC. And, uh, and now they've replaced him with Brent Venables, who was a former defensive coordinator there, uh, of course, under Bob Stoops. And, you know, when he left Oklahoma, I got to tell you, it was not under great uh, circumstances. Uh, Oklahoma's defense was not playing well at that time. And uh, that's when Bob brought back his brother to be the defensive coordinator. And as it turned out, Mike didn't do any better job than Brent had done. But Brent goes to Clemson, works with Dabo Swinney, does a great job, wins a couple of national championships there, uh, wins the, the Broyles Award for top assistant. And this is what they do at Oklahoma. They, the, In their entire history, there have only been three coaches that had been head coaches someplace else before they got the job at Oklahoma. Uh, the last time, of course, was Howard Schnellenberger, who had been a great coach, but by the time he got to Norman, he was out of gas. Uh, so uh, there they like the, to take guys and build on it. It certainly worked great with Bob Stoops. It certainly worked great with Lincoln Riley. We'll see what happens with Brent Venables. Uh, he's got uh, he's bringing in Jeff Levy, Art Brow's son-in-law, to be his offensive coordinator. Um, there's a lot of respect for that coaching tree, at least what they do on the field. Uh, Kendall Browse did a great job at Arkansas this year. So we'll see what they do uh, going forward. Uh, I'll leave it with it, this. I mean, what I told Oklahoma fans who I talked to was this. If Lincoln Riley left because he, was, he didn't want to mess with the SEC – Oklahoma's a lot better off than if he had stayed. Um, that's a challenge that coaches should want. And if, they, if they're willing to run away from that uh, for an easier lifestyle, then, you know, for a program like Oklahoma, that's the wrong guy. Well, I think that's what they think. Uh, and, of course, everybody always has bad things to say when the guy's gone. I will uh, – the last thing I would say is that uh, uh, that this, this team going forward here – uh, it's still going to be pretty good uh, at Oklahoma. It's a great program. They do a great job of bringing it back all the time. So uh, Texas can't hope that they're going to be down for very long, uh, if at all. So that's going to do it for us. We appreciate everybody coming on with us. Uh, be sure to come back uh, next time. We'd love to see you. Bye.